to assemble on the Lord's Day morning to come together to appreciate that things, indeed, in terms of what God has presented, are always right. Though men have certainly great disagreements, and though the human family can make choices, we understand that God's way is always right. And for that reason, today, as we open the Word of God, and at least for the next few moments, to be led to consider some of the aspects of it, that we can each learn some interesting things about things that God hates. That's the title I've given to the lesson today. And certainly it's interesting to notice that as the Word of God presents it, this opening slide will be a motivation, I would hope, for the remainder of our lesson today. We each lift high the banner of God's qualities in terms of, again, His perfection and His idealness in every way. And certainly we would seek to imitate attributes of Him like His loving disposition, His understanding of, again, that which is right. But by exactly the same token, there are some things the Bible says that God hates. And thus, if we are to pattern ourselves after that which God would endorse, we need to hate what He hates. We need to learn to have the same attitude toward these things that He does. I wonder what are some things God hates. Now, the word hate's a very strong word. I think we'd all agree to that. And yet, the Word of God uses that exact word in relation to certain behaviors, certain things that the human family can do or choose to do. What is it that God hates? I thought today what we would do is look into the Old Testament. There are a handful of occasions wherein it's explicitly stated that God hates something. And since it's true that God never changes, Malachi 3, verses 6 to 8, and since it's true that He is the same in, in, in terms of His presentation, we could learn a great deal about what He hated in the days of the Old Testament. This listing is thus going to be a, a quick consideration. We'll not need to dwell all that long on each member of the list. But as we do so, it will really have a great import to us today. For we'll ask the questions about ourselves, Am I guilty of this? Am I guilty of anything pertaining to this? For if so, when God hated it then, what does that indicate about His disposition toward it now? This listing starts like this. Let's start in somewhat of a general way in Psalm 11, verse 5. David, that marvelous psalmist of days gone by, would begin our discussion with this observation. When it comes to wickedness, God says, my soul hates it. Isn't that interesting? And thus, anything that would fall under the banner of iniquity, anything that would fall under the heading of ungodliness, anything that would fall under the heading of sin, God says, I hate it. Because you and I might immediately note this. That verse would quickly point it out. And the King James rendering turns out to be a bit interesting. It has reference to violence, but probably the better rendering is that which is wrong. Anybody who loves what's wrong, who has an interest in pursuing by deliberate choice what's wrong, God says, my soul hates that kind of choice. The question for you and for me today, do you and I, perhaps in weakness, or maybe just by virtue of poor, poor choice, deliberately choose to do what's wrong and seemingly thrive in it? God hates such a thing. 
doesn't that challenge us to ever ensure that our life is directed by and guarded along the nature of never choosing by deliberate matter that which is wicked? It continues to be true that peer pressure can thus be a very powerful matter in this regard, for there's a lot of people who choose what's wrong, and they seemingly delight in it. But for those who have a mindset connected to God, God said, I hate that kind of choice. And if you and I in integrity and earnestness would desire to please God, we must never fall in line with that kind of choice, again, by choosing. The statement then of God hating wickedness surely reminds us that throughout all the ages, God's people have found themselves in positions in which many surrounding neighbors and many surrounding forces were directed along the pathway of wickedness. And I suppose that'll be true till the end of time. But might we also say that point number one then asks us, so as we just noted, do you and I take pleasure in? Do we find enjoyment in? Do we pursue by choice? The matters of wickedness, if so, God hates the decision we're making. May you and I in wisdom do better than that if we're in that predicament. Number two, what else does God hate? This one, perhaps not surprising, because it fits in many ways with the one we've already noted. Through Moses, God had the children of Israel hear these words, My soul hates idolatry. My soul abominates idolatry. Now you and I remember that that particular discussion was the people of Israel found themselves in Egypt under the force or at least the influence of false gods. But even as they traveled, of course, through the wilderness, headed toward the land of Canaan, they too had neighbors and at least acquaintances that were motivated by false gods. God said, my soul hates idolatry. Deuteronomy 12, 31, Deuteronomy 16, 22. Both of which highlight, here's something God hates. Isn't it intriguing, or at least somewhat of interesting note, that as those statements were made, there might be some, and you may have heard people of our modern day say, well, I will never serve a God who is so jealous that He won't permit service to other forces. Oh, what blasphemy that is with respect to God. There are no forces equal to God. The first of the Ten Commandments was, There's no God besides me. Later on in the days of Isaiah, in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, I'm the one who from everlasting to everlasting, from beginning to end, is absolutely knowledgeable of all matters, both past, present, and future. There's none like me. For anybody to think that there are alternate forces or alternate matters of equal consequence to God is a reflection on the person's thinking, is a reflection on the person's mindset, and the kind of choices that person has allowed him or herself to make. No wonder in that connection you may note statements like this. What happens when individuals make choices in matters of idolatry. Well, the first thing you and I know, the consequences of idolatry are not just limited identically to some religious exercise choosing this other thing to worship. It has implications on every walk of life. 
It'll impact the way you think. It'll impact the way you talk. It'll impact the kind of behaviors that are natural matters in life. You see, the forces to which one gives attention will ultimately impact everything else. Is it any wonder in Romans 1.25, Paul would say that those of that day, the Gentiles, in other words, they worship and serve the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever, amen. And look at what they began to do. Over the last six verses of that chapter, a reflection on the sins, if you please, of the Gentiles. And you'll notice it all started with who they chose to worship. You see, idolatry is not just an idle choice. God said He hates it because its implications for those that involve themselves in it are disastrous. Not only will they forfeit eternity in heaven, but they also will have a miserable life here because they have forfeited acknowledgement of and direction to the greatest of all powers and that which can lead to happiness in this life and the one beyond. God says, I hate idolatry. Some might be quick to say, well, who is guilty of that today? I don't know of anybody that bows down to a rock or to a shrine or to a tree. Well, in some ways, there might be more that do that than you think. But at the very least, we could say this in Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul said covetousness is idolatry. Anything that we exalt to a position equal or higher to God makes us a covetor because we want something more than God. And Paul said then we're guilty of idolatry. We're worshiping something other than God. You and I, all of us could find ourselves in that predicament. Do I worship my job? My name's notoriety? Perhaps financial security? If I exalt any of them or anything else above service to God, I have made myself an idolater, and God hates what I've chosen. Something to think about, isn't it? Number three on that list takes us to the text that Brother Dennis read in our hearing a moment ago. I hope that you're still encamped in Proverbs chapter 6. Here we find a significant listing of things that God hates. Allow me to start in verse 16 of that chapter. These six things doth the Lord hate. We have here a direct listing then of several things that God hates. And the first one on the list, He said, Yea, seven are an abomination unto Him. Even before we launch into that discussion, may I draw our attention to that word abomination. That seems to carry an extreme element in disgust, an extreme element in abhorrence, if you please. God said, I can't stand these things. And if you and I would wish to live as God would have us to, surely we need to know what God loathes. Number one on the list, a proud look. Some might be in a position to ask, what is this? What are you talking about? I could understand it if he said, I hate murderers or I hate the activity connected to certain sins, but he's got a proud look. To look in some circumstance or upon another person with a degree of undue pride. God said, I hate that. Let's develop some of those thoughts like this. Why might that attribute or characteristic be such a problematic thing? 
Well, as the Word of God is so quick to reveal, that that proud look has something behind it. Nothing is done arbitrarily. Nothing is done without course to recourse. But rather, it harbors, it would seem in all likelihood, a heart of self-exaltation. It harbors a heart that you see lifts itself above the concerns or cares or even interests of anybody or anything else. Perhaps even the matter of God Himself. Because after all, isn't that the basic issue that many in our world, perhaps for a long time, have thought, I'm going to do what I want, regardless whether God says anything about it to the contrary or not. I'm going to do that which pleases me. And that kind of philosophy, of course, troubled those in Acts 17, just as surely as it does folks living today. You and I remember that several times in the Word of God, we are specifically told not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. So, how do you and I look upon ourselves in our daily walk of life, on the job site, among the community members, in other ways of life? Do we trample over the concerns, feelings, cares of others just to exalt our own desires and dispositions? If so, God hates that kind of activity. A proud look... Proverbs 16, 18 will say that pride goeth before destruction. You could complete that verse as easily as I. If you and I would wish then to appreciate an element, ultimately those that exalt themselves shall be abased. Luke 14, we notice in verses 11 and following. Maybe in final observation, we have another text of the Old Testament that highlights God's hatred toward things like this. And this time it was couched among the people of Israel. God specifically said, I hate the pride of Jacob. Now you and I, in most cases, lift high the banner of Jacob as opposed to Esau because Jacob was the one that gave us the twelve tribes of Israel. But there was something by Malachi's day that God said, I hate what these people have done. I hate the pride that has welled up within them, the exaltation they have given of themselves even above my laws. God said, I hate that. Don't we know today that God still hates at any time that a proud look is thus that which take place against the things we've learned today? Number four on the list quickly follows. Verse number 17 says, Not only a proud look, a lying tongue. A lying tongue. This is just one passage among a host of others that describe for us the nature of liars. That is to say, what is the disposition and the final consequence of them? It is not that the, the people of this present day, the day of, of Solomon here, were the only ones bothered by this. Later on in the days of Zechariah the prophet, God, through the prophet, admonished them, Speak every man truth with his neighbor. Don't be given to a lying tongue. Don't be given to lying lips. Isn't it interesting that these particular time periods, separated by so much, were given very similar words. May I suggest not much has changed from then till now. How much do you and I honor truth? 
may we be honest with ourselves, how much do you and I love truth? Do we plant it as the highest and most noble of matters and it is to be acquired at any cost? Or are we only to acquire it when it's convenient? When it happens to advantage us in some way? For if that's our only interest in truth, we have very little interest in it. The Word of God points it out in phrases, in ways somewhat like this, Buy the truth and sell it not. Proverbs 23, verse 23. In the attaining of or pursuit of truth, you'll notice in that passage among several others, statements perhaps like these are encouraged we remember that even in the New Testament, when Jesus pointed out the sweet nature of truth, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Without truth, we're slaves to something. We're slaves to see that which is no good. But when we have not only selected truth, but chosen to follow it, to imbibe it, then we are freed from the shackles of iniquity and, and, and sin. And we are able to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, bondage servants, if you will, to Him. It's no wonder in that connection that the last point in that fourth one is this. As if all of these admonitions aren't enough, we are told that liars have a very, very fateful end. It's almost as if one final time in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in the Bible, we are told that among those cast into hell, into that lake of fire and brimstone, is emphasized this, those that love a lie and who speak the same. Again, the question for you and me, I don't want God to hate what I do, and I know you don't either. How much do you love truth? Are you guilty of lying? Have you allowed it to become a frequent part of life to cover your tracks, to save a little face here or there? We need to stop that, for God hates that kind of thing. May we be those that love the truth. Number five, what else do we observe? Back to verse 17, in addition to a proud look and a lying tongue, it says, "...hands that shed innocent blood." hands that shed innocent blood. That 17th verse then, as these matters have been listed, have brought us to give thought to that act in which, by choice, some have taken the life of the innocent, taken the life of those who were not guilty, who were not those susceptible to the things perhaps accused in one way or another. You and I know very well that God has stated there are occasions when lives can be taken. He authorized capital punishment in the Old Testament. He still does today. But there were many instances in which He warned about the taking of innocent life. Be it young, be it old, be it in between. I would point out then that, at least in that regard, it is a rather serious reflection not only upon the individual guilty of this, but on a society that would approve it. Any society that would step to the point of openly approving the taking of innocent life has stepped far from the consciousness of the kind of society that God would wish them to be. 
And at times, such was true of some of the ancient societies, and such is still true of some modern ones as well. Innocent blood. Much can be said from the minor prophets of the Old Testament about the choices. And if you'd like to read a funeral eulogy of a land that was guilty of things like this, you might read Hosea, the fourth chapter sometime. A land, you see, that had made its choice to, uh, to dwell in activities like this, and God had the preacher to pronounce a funeral procession over them. This is where you've come. You're a kind of society that basically is dead. As far as standing for what's noble, standing for what's appropriate, standing for that which is of life, you've turned your back on it. It's still something to appreciate, isn't it, that the shedding of innocent blood is a reflection on what a people will stand for and what they're unwilling to stand for. Sanctity in life. The fact that God gives it, and only He has the liberty of choosing when to take it. No wonder in that regard, several examples such as 2 Kings 24, as well as others, point out that some of God's own people, the kings at least, made choices along that line, and God pronounced very strong sentences against them. May we pray in earnestness for our land that the evil connected to the shedding of innocent blood might be something in which people's minds will be turned to realize the truth and not be given to these kinds of things, regardless of convenience, regardless of political association, regardless of other matters that might be of some force in it. Ultimately, what matters is innocent blood has and continues to be shed, and God hates such a thing. The next element on our list, in addition to hands that shed innocent blood, takes us to number 6, and the wording presents itself like this. Verse 18, "...and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations." A heart that devises wickedness. People that plan it out. It's not that they just haphazardly fall into it. They've made deliberate choices to move in the direction of wickedness. God said, I hate the kind of heart that is so far from me that this is their motivation. This is their line of thinking. This is the particular of what they wish to be true for them. And obviously that's very hurtful to themselves, but to so many others as well. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. On that slide, I've invited you to consider that there are some things that the Word of God reminds us about this. Psalm 66, 18 will say, If a person regards iniquity in his heart, I won't hear them. We know God does not respond in direct way to the prayers of those in this predicament. What about you and me? Are you and I making plans for sin? We better be honest here. Are you making plans to not be here tonight? Are you making plans to not be here Wednesday? If so, I'm in this category. I am regarding iniquity deliberately, with choice and with purpose. And so many other matters might be added to this. But among other matters, it gets down to what my choices are. And here it's those that, verse 18, devise. They make plans. It's not haphazard. It's not accidental. 
they are choosing to do evil. That which God has lifted high as unacceptable, if I'm in that category, God hates what I'm doing. All of us then might appreciate that as the inspired writer pointed out matters like this one, it was a challenge, no doubt, then, just as easily as it is now. You'll notice it's such a tragedy then when that decision clearly has a direct impact on so many others, putting stumbling blocks in their way, in their life, choosing to put them in a position, you see, where they are not encouraged as they otherwise might have been. That particular element leads us to the next one. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. Now that's the way the King James reads it. To run to mischief. I would invite us to again ponder as a reflection on a person or on a society. To run to what is of mischief. It's not that you walk toward it. It's not that you saunter toward it. It's not that you accidentally back into it. You run to it. A mindset directed in such a disposition to hasten toward what is of mischief. There are times, isn't it, when I suppose all of us find ourselves in matters of decision. What am I to do in this case? What would be better for myself and my family? What would be better for the Lord's church? What would be the best? And yet as we make that kind of a decision, we also know that there are others who in making it are motivated by things that ultimately are running to what is of evil. Notice that the Word of God describes several times people who are in this predicament. There were those in Isaiah 30 who added sin to sin... One sin wasn't enough. They had to have another one. They added sin on top of sin. In Micah chapter 7, they do err with both hands earnestly. Committing sin with one hand wasn't enough. They had to engage full throttle. All four burners. Sometimes you and I might know individuals, or again, groups like that, who seemingly aren't satisfied with a little sin, They want more of it. God says, I hate that kind of set of choices. That circumstance in which there's a swiftness in running to mischief. At the bottom of that slide, might we remember that God admonished those of that ancient era to seek the good way and walk therein. But do you remember their retort? They said, we will not. You know, the old way, the way that, of course, was of old, was what God encouraged. But they didn't want anything to do with it. Sometimes today, the feet that run to shed, or that run toward mischief, are running toward, you know, those matters that are connected not just to haphazard wrong, but blatant evil. The last two in the list... The last two, at least in this particular list, takes us to verse number 19. A false witness that speaketh lies. And furthermore, he that soweth discord among brethren. 
Now, could I invite you to notice this false witness that speaketh lies? I somewhat discussed that one earlier when we mentioned the lying tongue. And so I chose to simply slide consideration of this last one. Sowing discord among brethren. Isn't it a great thing to say that God hates this? That person that would disrupt the unity of God's people that person that would willfully and deliberately seek to turn brethren against one another, that would seek to sow strife amongst them, that would seek to ultimately lead to problems in their relationship one to the other. Now, you and I know very well that people are different, different perspectives and backgrounds, but the fact remains that someone who will deliberately sow discord among brethren that person has chosen to do something that God absolutely hates. A few words of development concerning that might be this. You'll see easily this statement with me. I tried to reword part of it. It seems based on the original language, it would not be out of order to put it in this way. Those that shoot contention among brethren... Now, the word soul is what the King James presented. But you'll notice the connection to the word shoot. We all know that you direct an arrow by willful choice. Now, you aim at a target. It would seem as if there is then a reference at least somewhat to one who deliberately and willfully plans in such a way to cause strife among people, among brethren in particular. Now, you and I know what kind of problems that can result in eventually. Brothers and sisters in Christ that don't get along, they don't see eye to eye to such an extent that they part ways and part company, sometimes not speaking much one to the other, sometimes even congregations eventually divided because of it. As often as the Word of God speaks to that thing, at least here we have this observation to those who would sow this, who would plan for this, who would make effort toward bringing this about. God said, I hate this kind of activity, sowing discord among brethren. It's no wonder then that it's fair to say that among the last statement there is this, how often is the church reminded to be so lovingly centered on community and togetherness and the realization we're the family of God I would point us to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. There the statement goes like this, that you and I are to behave in such a way that we're of the same mind, of the same judgment, we speak the same thing, we teach the same thing. That's a unity, a unison, if you please. And how lovely is verses like Psalm 133, verse 1. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. May it never be said of you or me that we have been the cause of division in the church, that we've been the cause of a stumbling block that has caused someone else at least to have a stepping stone on the pathway to hell. Because if that's true, we may well be headed there too. God hates this. One last thing then in that before we look at our last one might be the New Testament is so strong about this that in Romans 16, 17, 
Paul told the congregation in Rome, Mark them, which cause divisions contrary to what you've learned, and avoid them. And so today, our elders, for example, take a careful appreciation to a sense of unity. And if any false teaching is ever apparent, or if they are aware of it, they certainly will take the lead in helping to make sure that that does not have ground in which it can grow in a place like this. The ninth and final one on our list today comes not from this list, but from a different presentation in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 2, God one more time said, I hate something. You've already seen on the slide what it is. There was an activity that was common and prevalent back then, just as it is today, and God hated it then. He said, I hate divorce. I hate putting away. Now, the circumstances of the time were certainly very intriguing, but it's true that God said when marriages have been made perfectly right in good marriages, and one or the other chooses to put this away, chooses to do away with it, God said, I hate this, because the home is such a bedrock of towering strength for all that are in it, pointing toward the reality of goodness and strength, connection to God, heaven itself. But of course, when the man and the woman have chosen to go their separate ways. Now we know in the New Testament, in the case of fornication, God does permit this, but think about how sad it is even in that case. This beautiful and eternal union, due to the sin on the part of one or both, has allowed them to put it away. And so the strength and the towering fortress that once had been there is gone. And therefore they lied to each other, and they lied to all the witnesses present at the wedding, and they lied to God. For they promised to keep themselves to one another, but they didn't. And so you and I notice in the Old Testament that there were those in Malachi's day that had chosen to do away with these marriages. God said, I hate this. One more time, it's a reflection, isn't it? Upon mindset and attitude and a reflection on what that society esteems as high. We've often noted it, but perhaps it's appropriate to do so again. In our land, we understand well that couples might well choose to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in a marriage. All the particulars that go into it, and yet, few months later, $150 will get you a divorce. $150. You know, that amount of money, sufficiently small, it kind of does say how much we honor marriage in this land, doesn't it? You can do away with it so very cheaply. Let's close our lesson today then by saying we've looked at some things that God hates. And as we've looked at each one of them, it has reminded us that our mindset if we are to please God, should also hate these things. And we should lift high the consideration of the things that God loves instead. I've listed them at the bottom of that slide, one by one, the ones that we had looked at based on the texts of the day today. But let's allow each of us to make a moment of decision. Am I guilty? Do I love some things that God hates? If so, there is certainly work for me to do in my life. 
because I shouldn't expect under God's banner of purity and holiness that I shall be allowed to dwell where He is if I love the things He hates. You and I today appreciate the plan of salvation as well as the gospel's call of invitation. Today, there might be someone in this assembly that maybe upon reflection of your life has come to realize that the things that you hold so dear and the things that you love so much really turn out to be things that God doesn't think much of. If that be the case in your life, won't you run to the Lord today? Won't you run to the Master's side? Won't you run to the case where you will have the security and the loving desire to stand with Him and to one day enter heaven with Him? Today, if we could be of help in that way, the plan of salvation requires that you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have known that way of life and have chosen to walk from it, may I assure you, you will not be looked upon today in any insulting way by anybody in this assembly if you were to walk down this aisle. Rather, you will be such that God will be thanked for your kindness and the tenderness of your heart that's led you to respond the way that you have. You see, we don't look upon sin and take any element of proud proud look because of it, because if we were to do that, we'd be guilty, you see, of doing what God hates. But today, if you'd like to confess error, if you'd like to make repentance of that and thus be welcomed into the fold of God, we could help you. We could also pray for strength. If you're battling a particular sin or at least some circumstance in life, we'd be honored to pray that God's strength would be with you. If any of these things would be the need of your life today, won't you come? All together we stand and sing.